and welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. You know my guest's work, but you may not know his name. Martin Page is a songwriting legend. He's behind the smash hits We Built This City by Starship and These Dreams by Heart. Martin has worked with Bernie Taupin, Ellen John's songwriting partner, as well as Maurice White from Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, and he played keyboards on Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters. Martin fronted the 80s band Q-Feel, who had the hit Dancing in Heaven from the movie Girls Just Wanna Have Fun. He finally released his solo album in 1994 with In the House of Stone and Light. The title track is one of my all-time favorite songs. Speaking of the 90s, he collaborated with Go West on King of Wishful Thinking and Faithful. King of Wishful Thinking was brought back into the spotlight recently with Jimmy Fallon and Paul Rudd's take on the video. I asked Martin about that. Martin recently released his Slender Sadness. It's a compilation of eight new songs and new recordings of eight past songs. Martin was one of my favorite guests. He was really funny, really engaging, and he's got a great story to tell. Here's that story. And helping me relive my youth today is Martin Page. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure, now. It's good to be talking to you. Yeah, so I'm just going to jump around a little bit, but I just want to talk about the Slender Sadness for a little bit uh, first. Um, oh. I, I love it. A collection of you know old love songs and, and new ones. And one of the ones you had on there from House of Stone and Light was I Was Made For You. And it's, yeah. and it's funny because my now wife, who I've been together with for 24 years now, I included that song on a mixtape back in 1994. <laughs> Take this man who comes to you. Take me to your side. I throw away. Soulless days, I need you in my life. In the doorway of my heart, the presence of you shines. So put your face to my window and trust what you see inside. What are these hands for? If I can't bring you fallen rain, what are these eyes for? If I can't see the moon watch over you, what are these arms for? If I can't hold you through the night, what does this heart beat for? If I can't lay by your side, must know I was made for Oh, 
If I can't see the moon Watch over you What are these arms for? If I can't hold you through the night What does this heart beat for? If I can't live by your side You must know I was made Runaway trains dance in the rain. Someday you'll take my name. Kneel down in the blue light. Let your hair fall down around. Blow out all your candles tonight. And I believe you will see. I was made for you. What are these hands for? Wow! Wow! <laughs> and she's still and she's still married to you, right? I, I know. You know what? It's, I, I pay her off. So. <laughs> <laughs> my, my song didn't put her off. That's good. That's good. Yeah, it, it yeah, might have been it, my it singing. Was, <laughs> it, it was. It was. It was a great thing to do for me because um, uh, I just suddenly. It just felt like I'm in the mood to put a lot of emotional songs together. I think it's to do really know with with uh, with your age. I just sort of felt like this is the right time to do it. And uh, in the early years, you know, it wasn't so much that we went seeking for like I didn't even think it was cool to write about love. So it was like a, in a way a wisdom album for me. And as I was writing some uh, love songs. I just suddenly thought, my goodness, let me, let me just try and get hold of uh, the old one I was made for you, because it always went down so well live. And then I, it was a real treat to re, redo it, re-sing it, and to do it in a, in a more uh, more naked way. It really was a, quite a challenge, because I, it was, I didn't realize how many years ago that album had been. But the whole project for me was um, really enjoyable, because I was able to write eight new songs and to bring together eight songs from the past. So it was the right time for me to do something like that. Yeah, so if I ever make her another mixtape, I'll add I'll Grow Old With You on it. <laughs> yeah, and then you'll, she'll stay with you for another 24 years. Yeah, exactly, as, as long as the checks don't <laughs> bounce. <laughs> 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 yeah, so on, on that one, you recorded all the instruments and performed all of it yourself, correct? Yeah, I, you know, I've been doing that for quite a while now. Um, you know, my... When I first came to America in the 80s, I was collaborating so much. I mean, that was my that was my career. It was a wonderful apprenticeship, and I was working with all of my idols. And, I, you know, I did really something like nearly 20 years of collaborating. And then eventually I felt the courage to put a major studio in my house. I just finished working with Robbie Robertson on his solo album, and uh, he listened to a lot of my demos, and he said, I just don't know you know, why you aren't making your own records. And then, um, of course, I made In the House of Stone and Light with musicians. But then as 
technology changed and all the record companies started to change and uh, I was in, I've been in the business for a long time, everybody was encouraging me to form my own label and to do it myself and, and I actually grew up a fan of those albums like Paul McCartney doing his own solo record plan, everything, Todd Rundgren and Stevie Wonder and Stevie Winwood. I really loved those albums because they had so much um, of an intimate feel about them. And because I'd written so many songs for other people and demoed them, I played all the instruments sort of uh, myself. And I thought, well, hey, let's do it. Let's try it. And then it was cost effective. And as my career continued, you know, slowly on, it was very easy for me to, to make, to be writing at home and to make albums myself. So it was a, a wonderful luxury to do that. Um, but also, it was a great challenge, and, and in a lot of ways, I really enjoyed it, and I matured through uh, making the records totally myself. I was doing all the vocals, playing all the, all the instruments, so it was, it was a very um, soul-satisfying um, project for me, and I think I've done, goodness, I think four of my solo albums I've played uh, all myself, um, but this new album I'm working on, I've brought all the players back, so now I'm stepping back by having all the other musicians get involved, which is also... Um, a thrill as well and a nice nice time to do it yeah definitely and a, a little bit easier for you too <laughs> <laughs> no actually no I find it harder because when I'm doing it myself I sort of know what I'm going with and I settle with it but when I work with musicians I let them basically play free and then I spend a long time uh, piecing it together to see what were the most spiritual performances so I actually find it harder because everybody pops in does about 10 tracks of playing from their heart and then it, I'm left to work out <laughs> what I want to keep so and also it, it actually raises the ante a bit the musicians I've had on the new record are the ones that played on House of Stone and like they've all come back again and uh, they're playing so amazing it actually makes me it challenges me to to work harder and um, I think I'm making a very special record at the moment but it's been it's actually um, forced me to get out of my normal way of, of relying on myself and they've, they've played so well and have inspired these songs to another level so um, they're making me work harder actually oh okay alright so keep you on your toes That that's good then <laughs> yeah they're keeping my, they're keeping me on my toes there's no doubt about that right is, uh, is Phil Collins back working with you no, I, I I wish I could, but no, he's out on tour doing his thing. I, you know, I spoke to him oh about a year ago. Um, he, we stayed friends, but no, it's been basically Jack Hughes, you know, the Wayne stuff from Wayne. Oh yeah, Stone. yeah, he's definitely. Been, he's playing guitar. Neil Taylor from Tears for Fears. He's he came into town to do some stuff. It was also a thrill to have Brian from my first band right. who toured with me with House of Stone and Light from Q, and he was in the band Q for me. Brian Fairwood had played some yes. guitars. And Trevor Thornton, who um, was my original drummer with Q-Phil, he's been playing uh, drums, um, which is a real thrill because uh, I haven't worked with him for many years. And uh, I was going to work with Jimmy Copley again, the great drummer from London, but unfortunately he passed away. And, but we were in huge contact all, all through this. I was hoping he was going to get involved, but we didn't quite make the, the project. Uh, I, we, I miss him incredibly. But... And then the, the big thrill was I reached out to Paul Moore, Paul Joseph Moore from Blue Nile in Glasgow, and he's contributed keyboards on some of these new songs. So I've really got my dream team back again. It's pretty incredible. Oh, that's that's great. Um, would yeah. You, would you, um, are going to kind of revisit any Q-Feel songs? You know, um, 
Now, I, I, I haven't actually. I mean, sometimes I've sneakily been doing tracks around the edge under a pseudo name of a. I've sort of created this 80s band for fun. Okay. And it's turned that that's just a secret nobody really knows about. But it's um, I've sort of created this on the edges, and uh, it has a lot of cute feel about it. It's purely for fun. Sometimes I want to step away from the more emotional music I do and, and drop back to the synthesizers and the 80s. But um, I I once got with Brian again, you know, from Cuba because there was still an interest from a few, you know, quite a few fans about the band because right. we only made one album. But we actually feel. I think quite wisely, like you can't live it again. And we did what we did then, and now we're doing what we do now. So there's no cue feel in the, in the future, although I've been doing a few tracks on the side as a pseudo band, which has a little bit of uh, instinct from that era a little bit. So, but there's no, no cue feel won't. I think uh, I think we if we if cue feel formed again, we'd all have to go out in wheelchairs, which wouldn't be incredibly uh, attractive. I think. <laughs> 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 Wheel on the four wheelchairs. There comes Q-Phil. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you you probably wouldn't be able to fit in the uh, outfit you wore in the video then of Dancing in Heaven. No, <laughs> I don't think so, mate. I think those days are gone. They were fantastic days, but I think you know when I think about it now, Q-Phil was a tremendous launching pad for me because uh, uh, it brought me across in the eighties with the hit single Dancing in Heaven, and we were. Brian and I were almost like a, a funky ultravox at that time, and it was a, when I arrived in Los Angeles, they were playing Dancing in Heaven on K-Rock a great deal, and we were sort of thought of as one of those kind of underground bands that were breaking through, like Thompson Twins and um, Tom Dolby. But uh, it, what it did for us is that a lot of American artists in town <clears throat> were very interested in that sound, so in a way, Q-Phil led me to <clears throat> Maurice White and Earth, Wind and Fire and to work with Kim Kynes, so I have a lot of a lot of love for Q-Phil because it was like a ticket for me to build a career, a career in America.
mean, uh, speaking of like dancing and having like all my friends who are girls, you know, growing up, loved. Yeah. Um, you know, the movie girls would just want to have fun, and that song was prominently featured, and everyone loves that song, and it was definitely yeah. one of the memorable hits of the 80s. That was a, a very, 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 you know, special time for me, because uh, we just, we, uh, Dancing in Heaven really erupted in, around the West Coast, and it was a time of um, everybody working out, and then the, the film, you know, exploded, uh, and, and this record, it's, a, it's quite a mystery really because lots of people think that Dancing in Heaven was a huge hit but it didn't really it didn't get in the top 100 it was just an underground uh, hit in Los Angeles and I think in Minneapolis and uh, it was a cult record more than anything else um, so when I when, when I mention my songs that I've written people seem to know Dancing in Heaven but they're not aware that it actually was only a club hit it wasn't it didn't it didn't break through on the major charts here because it was really the first release on Jive Records, and they had Flock of Seagulls and us, and the Flock of Seagulls <clears throat> got the promotion, and Qfield basically were left by the wayside at that point because the record company was so so new and fresh, and nobody expected it to be a hit in America. But as I said, no, it was such a launching patch, pad for me because I was in L.A. as a songwriter with Brian, my partner then, when Dancing in Heaven was breaking, and so it, <clears throat> it opened all the doors to all the record companies for me to work with their artists, which was a great education. Right, and then, like you mentioned, you know, Maurice White from Earth, Wind & Fire. Um, I'm assuming he must, or the band must have been, like, a big influence in your music. That must have been some kind of uh, real tree to work with him. Uh, it, was, it was huge, no. I mean, it was like, um, you know, Moses coming down from the mountain for me. It was, it was, it was unreal because I grew really as I grew up as a bass player in England. I just really followed funk music. Um, and I was when I first became a musician, I was a, a, my primary instrument is a bass. So I was really, really touring England, playing you know average white songs, Earth, Wind and Fire, Bootsy, Funkadelic. It was a bass player's paradise. But I always worshipped Earth, Wind and Fire's records because I felt like they had a spiritual element to them. So it it's um, it was an incredible um, breakthrough for me to for Maurice to uh, meet up with me and then say you know if he don't go away kid and write a song I hit a song for Earth Wind and Fire and I got a little late track and wrote Magnetic here which for me was a big breakthrough but Earth Wind and Fire at that time was sort of going through the throes of breaking up but right. it was unreal because I got very close to Maurice and then when he did his solo record. Um, I was involved in that very heavily, writing songs and also, you know, playing bass and uh, an associate producer. So Maurice was, a, was, I know the word has been used a lot, mentor, but Maurice White was a huge mentor to me. And you're right, Noel, I grew up in a bedsit listening on the headphones to I Am and Rays and Gratitude by Earth, Wind and Fire, and all of a sudden I'm in, in the studio with them all playing live and uh, making, making music with them. So one of those things where you really do think how the hell did this happen? I was in a time machine. Suddenly I was, you know, in England just practicing Earth, Wind & Fire songs and all of a sudden I was in, a, in Earth, Wind & Fire with them <laughs> writing material. So, yeah, it was, uh, the 80s for me was, if anything, it was that Q-Feel, my band, had excited all the American um, artists to try a new sound. And, of course, Brian and I were synthesizer-oriented and Earth, Wind & Fire, Maurice wanted to change their sound. So a lot that let the, open the door was that Q-Feel record and the 80s technology 
uh, English European was influencing American bands, and that was a you know that opened the door for me. But Maurice was a great teacher, and as a producer, I learned uh, a tremendous amount from him. Yeah, and he's uh, definitely missed. Oh yeah, uh, I, I, I every day. Actually, I'm sat in a, in a room in a studio in my house here, and I've got a few pictures of uh, Maurice on the wall here because uh, Maurice, Bernie Taupin, and Robbie Robertson are really the triad of people that I learned so much from, and uh, different aspects of music I gained so much from them when I came here. So yeah, Maurice is very special to me in my heart for uh, believing in me and uh, you know pushing me on. Yeah. Now, growing up in England, when did you first like get involved? in music or actually start listening and enjoying music? Um, well, I, I grew up uh, in Southampton and uh, like all the kids in the early 60s, um, we saw the Beatles on TV. So at around the age of 14, from 10 to 14, the Beatles were on TV and uh, their first hits, you know, like uh, Love Me Do and Please Please Me were, were like revolutionary to us kids. So I, I think between 10 and 14, um, with uh, watching the Beatles on TV, um, just exploded uh, my, my brain at that time. Something told me as a kid, even though I didn't know what I was taking in, that this was very special. I feel very fortunate because between 10 and 14, up to 16, you know, it was the Beatles and Motown. Motown were being played a great deal in England. And that was what I grew up on, really, 45 uh, RPM vinyl records and listening to Radio Luxembourg off the coast of um, England. And they were playing some incredible American music. And uh, the Beatles were exploding then, and, and a lot of good music was coming from America, which was Motown. So I think, because um, I'm writing a, a, a memoir at the moment of all this, and at 14 I sort of got stunned by the Beatles and thought, without knowing what was going on. I thought there's some magic here and they make me feel so happy. Around 16, I started to take music very seriously and collect records. And around the age of 18, after I finished my soccer career with Southampton, I, I picked up a bass. I started very late, but at the age of 18 was when I took it seriously to, to pursue a career as a musician, as a bass player. So I think that big years for me learning were 14, 16, and 18. But, and really, I, you know, it's quite late, really, for a musician to start. But, um, and of course, when QFIL broke, I was well in my 20s. So everything in my career has been a little bit late as, it, as it's happened. But uh, I still look back and think how fortunate I was to um, have been brought up on the Beatles and Motown. Um, There's a great education on songs. These were, these were incredible songs being written at that time. So how did you uh, decide to, uh, to play the bass? Um, you know, I, I've been writing about this recently, and I was talking to my manager and an editor about it. I, every time I played a record, I somehow felt the bass. I felt it in my chest or in my stomach. And uh, when I even got my first guitar, um, whenever I tried to work out from a record, I learned, I'm totally... Um, self-trained I learned from records I know um, I never went to music college or anything so it was all from records just from ear and I always found myself not necessarily playing the lead line or the melody I was I was working out the bass the bass seemed to be very soulful to me and to be the root and the blood of something and um, I remember that 
I bought a guitar and I was playing along to records, but I was fascinated that I was hearing the bass and without knowing it, I was playing the bottom end. I, and I'm a big guy, I'm six foot, so I thought, something about the way the bottom end of a guitar resonates and it seems to go right through the room. And before long, I traded in my six-string guitar for a four-string low-octave bass because I just seemed to... And also, I, my mother was... Um, but she loved music and she was a dancer. I mean, when I say a dancer, she used to love to loved rhythmic music. And so I think I picked up from her the sense of, of rhythm, the sense of groove. And then uh, I'm probably, you know, a failed guitarist because mm. I found playing the bass much easier. And, and I got quite, I think, again, no, it was a lucky time because Motown records featured bass it was when bass started to be heard on the radio um you know really heard and then uh, and black musicians with their sense of great rhythm and the sense of groove and feel was beginning to come through even in the 60s and for some reason um i just gravitated to what i think is you know the harmonic um uh, bottom of, of music you know I'm, i i tend to hear uh, bass quicker than I hear it with the melody. I don't really hear the middle so much. I hear what the low end is, the the chest and the bottom of and the the, the legs of a song with the with the head of a song, which I call the melody. So in a way, it's like looking at a, you know, for me when I write a song, it's like looking at a frame of a human. I see the melody is the head, the pads and the chords, are the chest and the bass and the drums are the legs. And um, I tend to always gravitate towards a strong fundamental legs and uh, the bottom end of a record so it just attracted me from from i think my sense of um my mother's love of rhythm you know she i now realize that she was always playing swing music in the house when i was even like you know four or five years old I, and that was all you know strident bass swing records and rhythm so i think i was attracted to that now when you told your parents that you uh wanted to become a musician what was their like reaction mum was happy because I was being trained to be a footballer now you know up to the age of um, from 10 till 18 I was being nurtured to be a soccer player but I was always coming home with broken noses and concussion and you know uh, injuries galore and so my mum was like this that I don't want my son to be a footballer and my dad wanted me to be with that you know and uh, and I did want to be a soccer player for big time from about nine on to about 15 that was my love with music in fact, football was more important than music until I got to about 16 or 18. But um, I think um, I was very fortunate now. My parents really wanted me just to be happy. They really wanted, they really supported me. I, was, I had a lot of love in my family. And if, if I, and I was one of those kids that was highly strung and one day wanted to be an Air Force pilot, next day wanted to be a DJ, mm -hmm. then I wanted to be a comedian, then I wanted to be a painter, and then I wanted to be a musician. So I remember when I said to my parents, you know, I'm going to leave art college and, uh, and join bands and play bass. I remember them thinking, oh, dear, it's another one of his, his fancies. You know, he'll, in a week, he'll be past this. But it went on and on. And, um, of course, when I started to get a little bit of success in, in America and my parents were just wholeheartedly behind me, they could see I was very passionate about something. Music made me happy. And I was lucky to have parents that... Um, wanted me to be happy so their their love for me and their uh they, 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 the huge amount of love they showed for me was getting out of the way they supported me but they sort of said you know if that's what you really want to do um, we're not going to stop you as long as it makes you happy 
And, um, I, you know, it, it, I trained hard and I practiced hard and I was devoted to it. I was addicted to music. So I never uh, for a moment stopped learning. And I think they could see in me, even from the ages of like 17 onwards, that um, you, I couldn't, they, they just could not stop this passion I had. And that's, um, they, they didn't really fight it, which was very, very lucky. Because I came from uh, Southampton, which is a... a a port, and most of my family uh, was destined to be dockers, you know, and work down the docks. And uh, I was going against the grain a bit and dreaming of, you know, being a rock star. So um, I think that they were just fantastic in saying, you know, maybe he's really, uh, this is something that he's going to really pursue. And they let me do it, and whenever I really needed support, I needed to talk to them or have an advance of money to get a car to go and travel down, you know, down the M1 to do auditions, they would, they would help me in some way. So I owe them really everything for um, allowing me to follow my passion. Yeah, and it's really great to have, like, parents who, you know, encourage you and stand behind you rather than, yeah, you know, kind of like... I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, no, I'm just, I just realized that it's an incredibly fortunate situation, and uh, I was one of the lucky ones that uh, was given the chance to do something I want to do. Right, exactly, because you, you're going to end up doing it anyway, so the parents might as well get behind you and support you. Well, it is, it is true what you, what you say there now, you know, I mean, I think... My, you know, my parents just sort of went like, "There's nothing we can do to stop him." You know, he's 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 going for this. But um, at the same time, they could have aired their grievances about it and made me feel uncomfortable, uh, but they didn't. You know, um, and I think because, as my father said to me in later years before he passed, he said, your, your, "He said your mother was very musical, and she she came alive with music. You know, she loved her records because Mum was a record collector too. So in a way, I think my dad could see that in a way I was this was a this stem was coming from my mother. It was in me as well. And uh, I think he could see that that was something he had to stand out of the way of and say, well, if you don't want to, you know, he wanted me to be a football, footballer, but I think he could see that this was going to hold me much more for the rest of my life. Right, and you can be doing this, you know, your whole life. You know, can only play football for so long. <laughs> it's very true, very true. I actually, uh, people don't believe this, but I, I actually thought of that. I thought, well, I like soccer. I'm quite good at it. I might play for a third division team, but I, I'm not going to be a superstar at this, and my career is going to be over by 26, and I'll end up an alcoholic in a pub somewhere up the north of England, which most, most footballers do. And I thought, but as a musician, you can go on forever. You can, and as a producer, um, you can, you know, it's what's in your brain. It, uh, sport is a physical thing, but if your creativity is in your brain, um, you have a chance to go on or through your life doing something um, which comes from an intellectual side and is not really uh, based so much on a, on your body being formed. You just have to be uh, creative. And so I, even, at, even at an early age when I was at art college, I thought, well, you know, music, literature, painting is something that um, really really has a shelf life forever. It's about how uh, creative you are. And um, that did appeal to me back then, yeah. Yeah, there's only so many headers you can take with the soccer ball. <laughs> I can tell that's probably why I'm, you know, um, um, you know, not talking too fast now because I headed the ball so much. I mean, in the older days, got back in the uh, 50s, they were they were heading, you know, leather balls. It's not they're not like the light balls now. And some men in England recently have, have died from that and have actually sued the football association because of heading being forced to head the ball so much. Um, it's, we can joke about it, but uh, yeah, that's 
how many times do you want to break your nose? Um, so, yeah, it's it's. Uh, it, I think I think. Although I I love soccer, I think, and everybody tells me I chose the right uh, career in the end. Yeah, absolutely, and we're all you know grateful for it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my, my my son, soccer league. They also they they banned headers. So anytime. Do they, they really? Yeah. They, they did, it, ah. which is which is interesting. Sometimes you know, instinct will you know take you to do it. So it's kind of hard to kind of back you know back off, and then just let them. Yeah, it is. Um, and of course, the, the football the football is that the actual football is so much lighter, and uh, there's so many rules about when you jump. And of course, I'm a tall guy, so my my in, when I was playing for Southampton and I was uh, playing soccer as an apprentice, um, I was always a centre forward or a centre half, and that's your job. You've just got to head the ball all the time because um, right. you're tall. Um, yeah, uh, I, even when I was playing, then they were thinking of saying, you know, this we've got to make the balls uh, a different cut, not leather, um, because it's, it, this is a dangerous sport. I mean, but I don't think it's anywhere near as dangerous as really what American football is. You know, they wear helmets, but they go into they they, they challenge like balls running in the walls, and uh, concussion is a very frightening thing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. One one little hit and it's just you know it's lights out. It's yeah. unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you worked also. You mentioned Bernie Taupin before. Also another one of your you know I wouldn't say idols, yeah. mentors. Um, how did you meet and start working with him? It's all around that same time, now, You know, coming into LA around um, early eighties and. Um, LA at that time, every it was really a songwriter's town. Um, and all the record companies were always looking for material for their artists. And um, fortunately, um, a gentleman called Bob Scoro was working at Warner Chapel Publishing, and he'd heard that myself and my partner were in town and we were playing some pretty incredible music to different people in record companies. And everybody was interested in us, Brian and myself, but because we were seeing it, we were, we were on the radio, uh, it was a new sound, and we were, I'd, I'd done my homework good, so before I came into L.A., I'd already had meetings set up with so many record companies. I happened to go to Warner Chapel Publishing, and Bob Scoro said how, how he handled Bernie Taupin's publishing. And he said, I just think you would be a really good writer to work with Bernie Taupin. How do you feel about that? And I said, well, I'm an absolute you know, fanatic for Elton, right. and I am a fanatic for all that they've done. I said, good, goodbye, Elibrick Rope was one of my top three records of all time for me, that album. So <laughs> they took the Q-Fill record and played it to Bernie, and I thought, oh my goodness, Bernie's not going to get into this. But <laughs> surprisingly, he was quite attracted to it. The story goes that Bernie was not working with Elton much then. Um, Elton was working with a different lyricist. They were like estranged. And okay. so, I, again, it was a good time for Bernie to work with somebody else. And Bob Scoro said, he, I'd like to... Um, you know, your youthful energy, your spark, the way youthful is, I think it would do Bernie really good to bring him into the 80s. And and, to, and in fact, I met with Bernie, um, and Bernie's first two lyrics, he to test me to see if we could work together, and we, we liked each other, but he sent me two lyrics, because he writes up front uh, always, you know, you get the lyrics before you do the song. He wrote, We Built the City in These Dreams, and, and tested me on that. He just sent me these two lyrics. These Dreams was at first called Boys in the Mist, and it was supposed to be for... Um, Stevie Nicks, right? Uh, Stevie Nicks, right, and she'd passed on it, and I think Bernie was just, you know, testing it out on me. 
So the first two songs he gave me, we, we both got number ones on them. Um, so it just really, as people said, it really encouraged us to go, well, we must be doing something right. And then we carried on working for, um, you know, quite a few years and getting quite a few cuts. And I helped him on his solo record and he helped me on House of Star and Light on a, a, two tunes. And, we've, you know, we're still friends now. And, and it was just, again, as I mentioned, Noel, you know, it was uh, with Maurice White, I'd learned about great production, the spirit of musicians, you know, uh, live playing, letting the spirit come into the studio. But Bernie, I was working with, with what I class as the, one of the greatest popular lyricists of all time, you know. I knew as a kid when I was studying Elton's music, I just thought the lyricist is, uh, you know, so unusual. And he's creating landscapes of, you know, medieval England. And, and it was just so extraordinarily colorful to me, the way um, Elton and Bernie worked together. So again, yeah, Bernie came in and, and I got a real, a real frontline seat at seeing how great lyrics were written. And, and um, again, I couldn't have worked with two of the, you know, and I was working with all these people at the same time, you know. I was, I was working with Bernie when I was working with Earth and Fire, when I was working with Earth and Fire. I was working with Bobby Robertson, who um, I class as a, a huge um, a huge point in my career. To, so these, this little tri triangle of uh, different styles of music uh, was fantastic for me. Uh, it's all from the 80s on. And uh, Bernie and I hit it off. And Bernie seemed to be really comfortable with me. He said, you know, you remind me a great deal of what it was like to work with Elton with the enthusiasm and just loving music so much and having such a huge record collection and being such a chameleon because I, so, I, I had so many styles to work in. That was one of the things I could jump between styles. And I think with Bernie, he was used to that with Elton. Elton could do many styles. So to me, Elton is, you know, we won't, we won't appreciate how incredible he is until he's gone because right. it's the most uh, of, of pop music and so melodic. Uh, ridiculous. To me, the Beatles and Elton in my era were the greatest songwriters. So to be working with Bernie, yeah, again, I, I felt like I'd been in a time machine and dropped off another planet and I was working with my idol. So it was a great time, all, all stemming from the 80s, really. Right. Now, when like Bernie gave you like the lyrics for the lyric sheet for We Built a City, how did you go about turning that into like a song? Because it, it's it's a it's it's a it's a great song, but it's it's very unusual. We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. We built this city. We built this city on rock and
think um, when I've done a few interviews about this song, because it's a song that seems to be reviled, reviled and hated, and a song that's absolutely worshipped, and it's been like yeah. a culture song, right. you know. And it's um, well, I can what, what Bernie was doing. He knew he was going to be working with me, so he gave me a lyric which is really quite, you know, contemporary and strange. And the demo we did, you know, I've mentioned it a lot, a lot of times, is very different to the way, the way the record came out. The demo was very underground and funky and dark, very much like Shock the Monkey by Peter Gabriel. Okay. And, uh, but I was working with a lot of different producers, and Peter Wolf, who went on to produce Starship, said, I like the sound of that song, let me take it to Starship. But I, I basically, what Bernie did with his, or always did with me with his lyrics, is he just sent me a fax with the lyrics on it. And I took it out of the fax machine, put it onto the music stand, and sat at, sat, sat at my Jupiter 8 synthesizer. And I could see straight away from the We Built This li lyrics that it was Bernie moving into a quite an angular, modern, and left-field zone. You know, it was, I couldn't really, I didn't really see that as an album lyric. So I really think Bernie was, um, a lot of ways, uh, creating something for the, for the time. He knew he was working with a, you know, a synthesizer guy who was, you know, Q-Phil, and we had this very, it was a different kind of uh, sound going on on the charts. So I think if you look at We Built the City, you see a very um, strongly oriented lyric, lyric to the time. Um, and I think Bernie was thinking that he was working with, with a, you know, a young punk in town who hmm. was going to be, who was doing high-tech high stuff. In a way, you could see... We built the city being handed to Tom Dolby or something. Right, I was going to say that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you could see a quirkiness there. You could see a quirkiness there. Um, and yet there was a quite a, you know, um, powerful message in it that, you know, live music mustn't be shut down, which was my take on it. And, of course, the demo I did was very much like a Q-Field demo. It was very, very uh, uh, synthesizer, European, um, dark, as I said, Shock the Monkey right. vibe. and. And when I played that eight-track demo to Bernie and these dreams, because when I did these dreams, I did it like orchestra maneuvers in the dark. The demo is like a candle in the wind done by orchestra maneuvers, very hmm. um, synth-oriented. Yeah. And Bernie said, I love the way these sound, you know. In fact, the two, when you listen to Hearts, These Dreams, and you listen to Starships, We Built the City, if you heard the demos, you'd hear the songs, but you'd think they were done by absolutely different artists. Hmm. I did these dreams sound like... Um, Orchestra Maneuver in the Dark, and I think We Built the City sounds like Gabriel and Q-Feel. Um, uh, so, you know, it got it got picked up by two American <laughs> rock bands, which I wasn't really a fan of, you know. I didn't I didn't read, like, Jefferson Starship. I didn't know much about them, and I thought Hartwood, you know, Barracuda was great, but they were just American heavy rock, and I, and I didn't, I wasn't as attracted to that as much as I was to American soul music. But, um, of course, you know, they did great great jobs on the songs for, for what was needed. And um, they were two breakthroughs for me. And, of course, encouraged me and Bernie to say, let's do some more because, we seem, you know, we seem to be doing quite well. But I do think Bernie was writing um, for me in the sense that he wrote those lyrics. I think We Built the City is quirky. And uh, I don't think it would necessarily have been a song he would have given to Elton. And you can see in these dreams... Uh, that those lyrics could have been working. You could see they could be constructed for um, Stevie Nicks. You know, it's very serial, very, very, very tale, and serial and mystical. So um, I think you can see there where Bernie was going with both those lyrics.
you know, I mean, I always thought Candle in the Wind was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful piece of work, and I ima imagined that, uh, and I liked orchestra maneuvers, uh, uh, Joan of Arc and some of their uh, atmospheric songs. And right. so when I wrote these dreams, I was I was actually trying to meld uh, an electric hymn um, into contemporary music. I was I was really seeing a beautiful melodic hymn, um, but the but with an orchestra maneuvers kind of Tom Dolby backing. So that's how I saw these things. And recently when I was doing talk doing an interview I I said a lot of the songs I first had cuts with in America were demoed in the way I would be demoing demoing for a future Q feel. Mm -hmm. You know, if Q feel had carried on, we would have done We Built the City. We may have done these dreams. Mm -hmm. We may have done the work I did with Kim Carnes and Visible Hands. So I can see in those early demos what attracted American artists to them because they think, hey, this is a new sound. But I can also hear it's a, a, the way I was writing for my own band at that time. Yeah, and like both those songs kind of like, you know, it's pretty like Starship and Heart into two different directions. You mentioned how they were rock bands and they kind of went into like a pop genre after those songs. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, would, would we have ever heard Heart do these dreams it was a third single and it, and it went number it was a, their first number one so yeah very very different style for them and nancy sang it and not the, uh, the other lady so it it was a real departure for them um and i think for starship i mean you know a lot of people were upset because it wasn't jefferson starship and it all sounded corporate to them but right. if you really really think about why people I think a lot of times get sick of uh, We Wrote the Cities because it's a band that had a kind of heritage and they thought they'd sold out. But if you listen to it as a record for what it is, because it was a hit in Europe and nobody really knew who Starship was, you can see that it's really a different animal altogether. I think a lot of its um, backlash to it is it was, it, was a, it was played so much and also um, people didn't, couldn't relate to... Um, one of the bands that did White Rabbit and came from the psychedelic era of San Francisco, and they'd come in, they suddenly were, you know, had two number ones on the charts. A lot of people just couldn't see how the band could go that way. I can understand that, but I think if you listen to the song for what it is, uh, harmonically, um, and even Bernie's lyrics, it's a, it's a really unusual track. And it's an unusual chord sequence for a rock song as well. And it, it seems to have stood the test of time, you know. I. When I first heard Starship's version of it, I didn't like it. I thought it was too military and stiff, and right. my demo was all really funky. But as the, as the years have gone on, I can really see that it was a very unusual rock song. You know, it, it, it wasn't from your normal um, stable of things, so it's got a uniqueness about it, which I'm proud about. Yeah. Was it your idea or Bernie's to add the, um, like the radio... Uh the DJ in the song, like the, the track. Oh mine, oh mine, good, me, good. me, mine, me, <laughs> me. No, no, it, it was, it was a, it was me being avant-garde. I mean, I was doing this demo, and I wanted Bernie to be excited, and I wanted to make Bernie feel. My main job was to do these dreams, and we built the city and play the demo to Bernie. I didn't think about anybody recording. I just wanted Bernie to go. Oh, this is cool. I don't mind writing with this kid, and um. I, I just had a, where, where I would usually do a solo, I thought, ah, boring guitar solos. <laughs> Let's do something that is really modern and out, outside. You know, and I was a great fan of Kraftwerk and Cluster and yeah. uh, German bands and, and experimental at that time um, from Europe. So I literally, 
and this isn't, it sounds like I'm making this up, but I literally thought, oh, let's just turn the radio on and see what, what's on. And I put the microphone down by this little transistor and I recorded a police report. There was a, there was a riot going on down, downtown in LA. And so the police report, I recorded it. I mean, it was first take, I just put the mic down, turned the radio on, and it said, you know, we're sending police down to so-and-so street to do this. And of course, I left it in there. I just thought, well, you know, Marconi plays the radio, you're hearing a bit of radio, it's a police report about uh, a riot going on. This all is pretty cool. This sounds good. Don't know what it means, but it all seems to be <laughs> sticking together. And, um, of course, when I, when the record got recorded, they all thought that I really meant to do that. And I think it triggered them to say, let's have a DJ talking about every uh, town, you know, and every city. So it was a great um, commercial ploy by RCA Records to have DJs um, mentioned that uh, in that on every record it's it Cincinnati here in San Francisco here in Boston here in New York and I really think it helped the record but it was a real no um, jam I just thought oh this sounds like a Michael only plays a number da, 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 da. and I thought well I'll put a solo here Got it, you know and I thought nah I don't do a solo let's do something avant-garde and I just turned the radio on and the radio mentions a street it says something like Robertson Street or something and I think that triggers everybody to say let's put um you know a, a name of a place or a city or something there and it was just a lucky 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 mistake which mm. i think also helped the record get played in so many different um cities at the same time because they, ma they made certain certain promotion records by rca said you know this is the town of boston this is the town of pittsburgh this is whatever and of course that really helped the record now, um, is there any a place? Lucky, a lucky mistake. That's what yeah, that's well, exactly. Sometimes those are the best ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My whole life has been a lucky mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> yeah. Now, is, is there any place where we can hear the demos or you ever plan to release them? Well, you know, they, they, they seem to be quite um, special to me and there's a chance that I might put them out on a record. Um, you know, we'll just... Uh, I would speak to the other writers about it. I can't really... Uh, I, 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 every time I think I'm just going to... I have played it to people. I have gone to UCLA to do songwriter talks and I've played it to the classes and everything. And a lot of the classes go, well, we, they're young and they go, we like the demo much better than we like the record because right. it's, it's still got that underground rough edge to it. But no, I, I, um, I've talked to my manager about it, and we think that it might be nice down the line to put an album out by me with a lot of demos on. Uh, <clears throat> so I think I'm going to hold on to them a little bit longer until the time's right and do it the right way. You know what I mean? Oh, totally, totally. It will be a, comp a compilation of um, you know all my happy mistakes might be a nice idea down the line. Yeah, there you go. There's the name of the uh, album right there. <laughs> <laughs> We've done it again. Yes. <laughs> another happy mistake. What, what, what's it called? Happy Mistakes? <laughs> oh, well, Lucky volume, Mistakes. Volume 1. Volume 1. Yeah, volume, volume 1. I like that. Volume 1. De <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so, you heard it here, folks. You it, heard it here. Exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll take a little cut. A small, oh, a small no, cut. I just thought about that then. I thought, oh, yeah. This yeah. is a collaboration now, dear. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, so then, you, you, then you collaborated with, uh, a couple of years later, with Go West, who had, yeah. you know, We Close Our Eyes and, you know, couple other hits in the in the 80s and helped them write two of their biggest hits uh faithful and king of wishful thinking how did you come up with uh working with them well um i i, I 
I loved their first album, you know, and uh, they were so musical. From afar, <clears throat> when um, We Close Our Eyes came on MTV, I just thought, wow, this is, as Arif Martin had said, you know, I'd read a report where he said this is England's Motown writers, you know, and that he, the video was so good, the song was so exciting, and I just thought the singer was a great singer. I, you know, that we, we now and then in England, we produce these great, um, R&B singers, Paul Young, Paul Carrick, right. Robert Palmer, and Pete Cox from Go West. I thought, here's one of these singers, which is outstanding. It, you know, he's, he's, he can sing this boy. And then again, a publisher who I signed to in L.A. said, um, what's your wish list? Who would you like to work with? And I said, well, I'd really like to work with um, Wang Chung and Go West. And uh, they said, well, Pete Cox, the lead singer, is in town. And uh, it was a time again when Pete and Richard Drummy weren't working together. It seemed like there was a, Pete was over here on his own. Okay. And they, they were in this place, which was hard for me to believe, but they were saying, they, I think they, they put a second album out, um, Dancing on the Couch. And I thought, it was, I thought it was very sophisticated and great in its own way, but it didn't break. And so I think Chrysalis Records were worried about them and saying, you know, we've got to get another hit. What do we do? And um, Pete Cox was over here. There's a bit of estrangement going on. I think a little bit of chaos in the band, and Pete was out seeing if there were any good producers or songwriters to work with. And um, he was sent to my house, and uh, we got on like a house on fire, a cup of tea, two English guys. It was just really great. And um, I wrote a song with him. I had an idea for him before he came called That's What Love Can Do. I had a really good groove going on. And I really, the good thing for me in my career is I knew their records. And most people I worked with, I knew their records before they came to me. So I felt like I was a band member. And, and when Pete came, I knew nearly, you know, their first two albums very well. And I think he was quite impressed that I was into them such a big, big time. And I, he, I don't think he was enjoying working with all the L.A. corporate songwriters. I think he felt like, he, you know, working with me was a bit like, you know, being at home and, and it being easy going. So we wrote this song together, did an eight-track demo, and he took it back to England, um, and, and he played it to Richard, and, Rich, and he told Richard, like, I think this guy's worth working with. And then they came, both came back and said, um, uh, we'd like to work with you. And I knew we were going to get together again, and so I started up another track before they came. As a writer, I like to have lots of ideas. So before anybody works with me, I'd say, give me a week. I want to make a lot of rough ideas. And then when you come over, I'll play you some ideas and tell me if any of them make any sense to you. Well, I'd started the, the groove for King of Wishful Thinking. Um, and they both said, "That's." A, I played about six things, and they said, that's the one we want to work on. Now, Richard had a title in his little black book where he kept titles, and Richard mm -hmm. had the title King Wishful Thinking. I had bits of the melody and the groove and the, the actual feel of the song, and Richard and Peter wrote the words. And we did King of Wishful Thinking, again, a 16, 16 track. I'd moved up to 16 track then. 8 track was the first time I worked with Peter on That's What Love Can Do. And King of Wishful Thinking was a 16 track in my garage. And... Uh, it wasn't for the film. It wasn't for Pretty Woman. It was just a, trying to make just a song we wrote together to please a record company and uh, EMI America. No, sorry, I don't, maybe they were EMI. I can't remember what label they're on here. It might be still Christmas, but they um, they got it into the movie, and of course that that shot the record all the way up the charts.
and then we we enjoyed it working so well together. And they're very musical. I mean, they're like horn, England's horn notes. They're very musical. Right. It, was, it was great for me because I'd come through Earth, Wind and & Fire, and um, here I was with Go West, who I saw as sort of 50-50. I saw them as an American-English soul band. They're very, very musical and, and quality, you know, really great quality. So we went faithful together. And they, you know, they went off touring because these two, Faithful and King Richard thinking did so well. I wish they'd touring America now because, um, you know, it, they, I think they would do well on an 80s tour over here. They're always, they're always touring in England. But that's how we got together. And uh, we wrote, I think, about four or five things with them. And um, it was just brilliant, just brilliant. Great guys to work with. And when you've got a singer like Pete Cox, singing your demo ideas, you know, you're, um, it's very special because the guy, the guy is a super, super singer. And I've been very fortunate to work with outstanding vocalists, you know. So Pete's one of those guys which I class as one of the um, great arm, English R&B singers. Yeah, and speaking of uh, King of Wishful Thinking, did you happen to see the Jimmy Fallon video? Yeah. yeah. Mm. That... I did. Somebody, somebody emailed me and said, watch this. And, um, and then I sent it to the boys in England, but they'd already seen it. It was already on their website. Yeah, I mean, but it's it, it's it's really great in a way because you get a feeling like uh, I've always thought the King of Wishful Thinking had uh, could have been is a, is an evergreen. I, I've had yes. a feeling like it, it, it could be a kind of it could have been a Smokey Robinson song. You know, it's the same way Tears of a Clown hangs in the air forever. King of Wishful Thinking has that kind of thing. I've always felt this. I just thought the King of Wishful Thinking is one of those evergreens that, um, I, 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 as I see Smokey Robinson's Tears of a Clown, I almost see in a mo modern era King of Wishful Thinking having that kind of very simple communication of uh, of emotions um, as Smokey did through the years. So. And it made me aware that after all these years, they could make fun of the video. But it also meant to me that that song has become ingrained in people's consciousness for them to do that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it got people thinking of Go West again, which is really good. It did. I think, and I thought, I hope it makes them want to come across to America, you know? Because I think, I just saw Paul Young here last year, and I'd done some work with him, and he's doing some of these 80s tours. And I thought, I don't know why Go West aren't over here, because I think they would be able to pull quite a good crowd with a with a good 80s, um, you know, bunch of bands. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, Paul Young's coming to New York, I, I think, in June yeah. with, with a mid-year, so I'm really excited about that. Yeah, yeah, he just told me that. i just uh, been uh, writing to him. In fact, I'm about to, play, about to put one of um, the demos I wrote with Paul on my Throwback Thursday this week on my Facebook account because uh, we did some great demos together, and Paul, Paul said, you know, it's already out there, why don't you let them hear a demo? But... I became very friendly with Paul, and we've kept we've kept very close. He was here last last year, playing in LA, and yeah, I hear that he's coming back with Mature. And he's a gentleman of of, um, of soul and pop. Uh, he's, he's a great guy. And again, I, I was so fortunate because you know a great singer to to do your demos with. And it's just so he's a pure soul boy. Yeah, totally, totally. But then finally, um, we got your debut album, your solo album, How's This Finally, Song? Finally, finally, finally. <laughs> Before he dies, he yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, so, um, A, what took you so long, and what was the process of writing uh, How's This Stone of Light? <laughs> uh, I, you know, um, 
The same man um, that I was telling you about that put me with Bernie Taupin um, from Chapel, he, he went on to work for Mercury Records, Bob Scoro, and he said to me years, years ago when I was working on with Bernie, he said, if ever you want to do a solo record, he said, you know, give me a call, because I think you should make a solo record. And I sort of held that in my back pocket, didn't think much of it. My manager, Diane, who's been my manager for over 30 years, was always saying to me, um, you know, it'd be great for you to make, why don't you make your own solo record? I said, well, I'm working with all these people, you know, it's, uh, you know, that you have to stop to do that. You have to concentrate on having a character. And really, I just didn't, didn't want to make a, you know, songwriter and make a solo album. I really wanted to believe in the record I'd make. So I sort of put it off. I went to work, um, early 90s, uh, I think, with Robbie Robertson, and I did, um, wrote Fallen Angel with him and Howard Harbaker on his first solo record. And it was a great, great experience because it was um, done with Daniel Lenoir, Peter Gabriel, and some incredible musicians, Manu Tashia on drums. And it was all to do with emotion and feel. And of course, I was bringing in these demos to Robbie Robertson, and he was listening to my demos and going, I really like your voice. He said, I don't know why you don't sing some of this stuff. And I said, well, you know, I'm working with so many different people and I don't have time. And he goes, well, well you should stop and write your own record. So it, from from Bob Scoro saying years ago, when you want to do it, uh, uh, let's do it. And he'd moved to Mercury Records in New York. Robbie Robertson kept on saying to me, you've got a voice, you've got a character, you've got something in how your demos have a particular magic. And my manager was slowly pushing me. So I, I got the confidence um, after working with Robbie Robertson because I'd put a full-fledged studio in my garage. I'd gone from 16-track up to 24-track. And I knew all these musicians um, that I got close to, musicians that um, were very, very um, spiritual and emotional. The um, Bill Dillons and the um, Jimmy Copley's, these, these players, real, really beautiful players. And so I thought, well, I'm in, I think it's time because um, I'd also gone through a bit of a burnout by working with so many people on a kind of factory, um, uh, kind of one gig after another. I was like a machine. And so I took a, a, a two-week break off and went to, to clear my head and to, in a way, restore myself. And I went down to the Grand Canyon and just tried to think everything through because I'd literally, from the 80s up to the 90s, 10 years, hadn't stopped. I'd just been working constantly. And... Um, while I was at the Grand Canyon, um, there's an Indian tribe at the bottom of the canyon called the Havasupai tribe, and they, they call the Grand Canyon uh, House of Stone and Light, and that just resonated with me in a spiritual way. And I saw that I was trying to uh, clean myself up to love music again. I burnt myself out. And so I saw, when I came back from the Grand Canyon, I started writing these lyrics or just phrases, and I saw House of Stone and Light as a kind of a... A restoration song for me as I was talking to my body, you know, like my, the, 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 the house is me, it's my brain, my body, and um, I've got to go towards the light. And I wrote, again, which I tend to do, is I wrote this song which felt like a hymn, which is House of Stone and Light. And I feel this is quite special to me. I'm 
20s and so it was um and 20s and 30s really this all carried on so i felt like i was able to, i had enough um shall we say apprenticeship of seeing how records were made and to, because robbie made his record robbie robertson in a kind of uh, little office in the in this massive studio i could see that you could search for emotion on your own you know you could really look for the spirit of what you're about and i had something to talk about really which was a restoration of lifting lifting me back up for the to play the game again because i'd really burnt out in a com commercial landscape so um you know, I did, I did the record for myself and to feel very proud of it and to try and get some kind of honesty out, you know. Uh, I, I never used to like those records that you'd say, oh, here's a top songwriter doing a bunch of songs which he, other people recorded. I wanted to do something that I felt was me, which had a English-Celtic folk background to it, a slight folk rhythmic back there. And all my influences, Jethro Tull, the funk of Brothers Johnson and... Um, you know, the uh, classical music. I was trying to bring it all in, but I was also trying to write very honest songs in the sense that in my room was written about, you know, my mother's stories of how, her, telling me stories of her mother getting, you know, having a, uh, her husband come home drunk and beat her. So I, these were these weren't, these were songs that I could actually believe in. And of course, Bernie Taupin said, you know, I'd like to write a couple of songs with you. So he was involved in it. It was just a wonderful thing to do. And although the album didn't sell, um, I, I toured for two years and the single exploded uh, in a lot of, uh, uh, very, very good for me. And it was a, an incredible um, uh, re-entry of me in a, in a different way. You know, a lot of people knew me for writing for other people, but nobody would ever, and the funny thing was everybody thought I was Sting, you know, because they, they like, that's a Sting record, that's a Sting record. So Mercury Records had to go out into the shops and, when they were looking for House of Stone, like they had to put a, a sticker on it saying, this isn't Sting, it's Martin Page. So I was a bit of an unknown quantity, um, but it led me on to doing all these other solo records myself. And and in the later years, now it all sounds very grand and uh, noble, but I, I've been able to write the songs I've really wanted to write, songs that are uh, very personal. And in those early years, I just saw it as a huge apprenticeship, you know, from We Built the City, Q Phil, um, Kim Carnes, uh, Earth, One of Fire. I just saw it as, as an apprenticeship, and I think I made my first solo record at the right time because I was able to do it on my own terms. And that, that's what, to me, felt like the success, was I was able to do it on my own terms. And, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned Sting because, you know, back then there wasn't, like, you know, really the Internet. You know, you, can, you didn't have the names yeah. of the songs on your radio or the phone or you can, you know, Shazam it. I, yeah. I I thought it was Sting for the first like three times, four times I heard oh, it. I did as well. I thought I thought I was Sting when I heard <laughs> on the radio. I, thought, I am Sting. Yeah, that's that's me. I'm Sting. Sting's me. No, I, I mean it was. I didn't really know. You know, I for years I didn't. Everybody was saying, you know, your voice is like Sting. Bit of Elton, bit of, you know, bit of Gabriel. And I, was, I go, well, I can't hear it, you know. But then uh, Mercury Records said, you know, we've got a bit of a problem in promoting this because people keep on walking into the shop saying we want Sting's new single, that one about a house of stone. Right. And, uh, you know, the Mercury said we're going to have to really do something with the record company, record labels. Um, so it was quite comical, really, you know, because now I can hear it more. But when I was making the record, I never heard, heard that in my voice. Um, but I take it as a compliment because, um, you know, I think Sting uh, has done some fantastic music. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I when I finally was able to, you know, to, no, nobody went out saying Sting was Martin Page. But nobody <laughs> said that. It was no. all Martin Page's Sting. I don't think Sting was ever. Nobody said to Sting, "Are you Martin Page?" I'm pretty sure of that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know. <laughs> yeah. No. You didn't hear like fortress around your heart and think, oh wow, that's Martin Page. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. I don't think that happened. I don't think that happened at all. I'd be shocked if that happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I was I was finally able to you know to, to buy the CD and uh-huh. you know I played you know literally the, the shit out of it for like you know a, a good year good. in college, good. and that was you know yeah. the middle of like you know the grunge era and stuff like that, and I'm and I'm playing yeah. your music. <laughs> Well, you know, it was a funny time. I think the, we, we hear now on the radio, I can hear the 80s. It never really goes away. But the 90s was, a strange, was an interesting time because it hasn't done its circle yet. You know, because at that time, as you say, Nirvana, the grunge was there. But also, it was Hootie and the Blowfish, you know, right. Delamitri, uh, Melissa Etheridge. And it was all to do with that kind of um, real playing and a real real folk and um, real music is you know all music is real music to me you know everything is uh, the sound of birds outside is real music to me or an industrial machines is music to me too but if you look at the 90s it was that that thing where you know uh, in a way i'd come through all the, all the technology the drum machines and synthesizers and everything and then and then it might when i released house of stone and light we were all players everything had changed a little bit it was very very much um as i said you know um the the rural time you know uh, Dave Matthews and all this it was like a different era and and in a way I think the, the 90s uh, so far suffered a little bit for that because it hasn't really been recalled as much as what we do when we recall back to the 80s but yeah the uh, I think a, a lot of why House of Stone and Light did so well as well because a lot of the records that were actually on the radio then were thought of you know as um, we're getting back to music we're getting back to acoustic guitars we're getting back to drummers and we're getting back to possibly um, a lot of soul you know a lot of emotion in the songs it's funny how we can look at these eras and go that's the 80s that's the 70s that's the 90s but, um, and in a way you can hear it but there hasn't been a re- resurgence of the 90s I think it will happen at a certain point because they're going to want to see the singer-songwriter again you know because that again was a big singer-songwriter kind of um, decade you know what I'm saying oh uh, yeah absolutely you know there's like like you mentioned there's a jewel there's like you know the Duncan yeah. Seek you know there, there are people like that who you know well, perform, yeah. you know, write their own songs, and it's, you, you mentioned it really hasn't happened yet. Another song from that album, which I absolutely love, was Keeper of the Flame. Yeah, yeah, that was the, um, it was a bit of a, um, we, we weren't sure what the second single would be. You know, I, I don't think even Mercury thought I'd have a second single. You know, it's, it was, uh, Mercury weren't doing so well as a label then, but House of Stone and Light had really done very well for them. And so, and I think it was myself and Bon Jovi that were keeping the right. <laughs> record company going at that point before they sort of dissolved. But um, a lot of people want to put on your red dress as the next one. single. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and Keeper of the Flame sort of won the day. Because when I, I toured Germany and it got such a response on tour that we all said, okay, let's plow for that one. And um, and then I, you know, I did get a third single. And I, in those days, I thought this is, because I'd come from England where you get one single on a label and that's it and you're right. gone you're dead yeah. but I was able to get three singles off of this album and I, I, I thought that was great success for me because I know how hard it is to get records, uh, record companies to believe past uh, the first or second single if they don't perform you know yeah 
So now when you It was a different time back then, though. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like downloads, and uh, it was a different time where, you know, you, you, you put a single out for six months, then you, you toured, and then you put another one out. These days, it's a little bit like you've got to... Albums are hard to exist. You've got to be uh, putting out a new single nearly every four weeks on the internet. So it's a different world then. Yeah. So like, you know, what are your thoughts now on just, like, the music industry in general? Uh, you know, I think it's... I think... Um, I think actually in a funny kind of way, I think it's all really good uh, because technology is always going to push us on. You know, when I came into L.A. in the 80s, everybody was scared of us because we used drum machines and synthesizers. And, you know, the Joni Mitchells and the Eagles and the Doobie Brothers were, were struggling because in, in came the English kids and the Tom Dolby's and the Thompson Twins with a different kind of view on music and the uh, new romantics and everything was... You know, Lindrums, technology, uh, AMS, reverb units, everything that was moving towards digital. And I could see the folks being nervous of that, and that's when I sort of broke through. So I don't think it's right, you know, when we get to where I'm at, to say, it, really, it's always going to change, and we have to go with the flow. And music's either going to find itself in a emotional place or it's going to be just entertainment and exciting it's always going to go in cycles but i think the only downside um what has happened to music which it's a double-edged sword digital technology digital te technology allows you to download things without paying for them right. uh pirating and so the reverence for music and the and the art of songwriting and the art of the musician who has had to tr is a little bit lost on the youth. Everything is a very very um, easy. To, millions of songs are easy to get. So the reverence, the kind of thing that where you say, "I'm going to save up for that album. I want to live with that album for a couple of months, and I really want to get into the lyrics." That seems to have been lost. There are brilliant artists out there. There always is, but I think the only um, thing we're lacking at the moment uh, in the industry is as we've seen with Tower Records shutting down with right. bookshops shutting down um, the reverence uh, although when I go to Amoeba here in Hollywood I can see a lot of the kids really are getting into the vinyl oh, again because it's tactile yeah. you know it's tactile you're feeling it you touch it you put Absolutely. the needle on um, I, I would not at all moan about um, music now I don't think there's I think all music is always going around in it in its space and there are great artists out there but I do think that we have gone through a little bit of a depression when I when I mean depression it is that songwriters musicians we've all had to suffer the, the loss of reverence and that means the loss of you know um, uh, royalties to right. musicians to songwriters because they haven't worked out really how to deal with this um, quick digital download it still is a, a thing that in a way decimated the, the record industry you know um, so in, my, in all the years I've been going and I've been one of the lucky ones to go through you know from having a work on a cassette to four track to eight track to fifteen track I know technology and I'm on Pro Tools now so and and everything so that's going to always happen and there's always going to be great writers and great ideas I think all we're going through is what I would call is like an industrial <laughs> depression where um, people the kids are, uh, are have so much to choose from and so much is allowed it gets out there which is substandard that, uh, that uh, a kind of reverence for what's really great and what's really special loses its chance to be nurtured I think it'll get better because arts and music 
um, when a great band or a great singer or somebody comes along who has something very special to say, I, I think we'll, we'll come along again. But I think we're still in that little depression age of industrial depression where we just don't quite know how to deal with uh, Apple, iTunes, and, uh, and songs being um, pirated and moved around for, you know, stri- no, no musician or songwriter can live off of streaming. You know, it's, it's you know, it, you can't live off of that. So it ultimately affects uh, people going in to be great, uh, to study songwriting and be musicians. They go, what's the point? You know, there's no reverence for it and I will never make any money from it. I, I need, how would I just survive? So I think it will get better. I don't think the music, we, I think the music has suffered a little, little bit because everything is so quick to get. Um, again, the word I want to use is reverence. And I think when something's really revered and thought of as special, um, there's, it, it gets respected more. And I do think that the digital um, technology, we, we couldn't hide from it. And it's great for, to do recordings on and to get mass media out. But it's also got a dark side to it where um, the reverence for great art can be diminished. And I, and I do feel like it'll get better, but I do think we're in, in that uh, very strange place where musicians and songwriters don't really get respect. Um, and everybody thinks everybody can do the same thing, and everybody thinks that quality um, can be grabbed very quickly. And um, it's sometimes if there's something brilliant out there, it's hard for everybody to know that it's brilliant because there's so much out there. And uh, that's not great for uh, the music business. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. I mean, I miss the days of going into Tower Records or like any record store that is and just going through, you know, vinyls and then became cassettes yeah. and, that, you know, and CDs. Just, you know, searching that, that, through that, 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 you're talk, You see, you're talking now about a, a, a soulful connection to creativity. Right. Um, at the moment, you know, putting your finger down to download something and then seeing it in and then playing it for two days and then it, it. losing it or you, know, you haven't got you, you're not connected always to the artistry so um, again the best word I could use is I think um, and I feel sometimes for the young kids because they don't really know what they've missed when you do fall in love with Goodbye Olympic Road for two years right. and go to bed with it and play it every night and put your headphones on and really 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 live it you know uh, it's uh there's something very soulful about that. And I'm not harping for the old days, because when I came in in the 80s, everybody was, was scared of us because we were using technology. Technology has to be always harnessed, and it'll always move in front of us. It's just that I think the um, music industry has to try and uh, bring artistry and um, reverence uh, and sensitivity back into young people's lives so that they think that this is very, very special and that it's and that some great artists really can be cherished. Um, that's the only thing that digital has done to the music industry, as it has to books. You know, we, we don't know what's great always because there's so much of it and then we get turned we, we get it so easily and so quickly that we don't get to live with it. So that's the downside of technology of digital. Um, speed isn't always the greatest way to fall in love with something um sometimes uh, the time itself and patience can make us fall in love with a great painting a great book or great music and um i can sound like an old fart saying this but i do know that when i talk to younger people that do discover led zeppelin who do discover early genesis they're they are absolutely enchanted because there's a a sign of great uh, 
heritage, uh, great training, great devotion in that kind of work, which uh, has got dissipated with uh, with the speed of digital. You know, we've got to we've got to find a slower speed so that we can see what is um, gorgeous and beautiful and special, so that we can see it clearer. You know. Yeah, totally. And I, you know, I miss just the chase of finding the song. You you hear you hear, you hear yeah. a song, you remember a couple of lyrics, you, you try to memorize it, and then go to the yeah. store and you know tell the the worker this song. You know, and you, you 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 know you sing the the verse, yeah. and you know you get embarrassed, but then you know there you go, you'll no, find it, the song. <laughs> it's fall, it, it's falling in love with something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, it's you know it's falling in love with something and um, being very passionate about it. Um, that's something that's not really quite out there for the young people now or even for the for the musicians because um it's so there's so much of it and it's so easy to get that uh, the magic goes out of it a little bit I, I think it's out there in the music i think it's out there in the artists i think it's the way that it's being um given to people um i mean everything if you look at politics if you look at the twitter you know it, 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 it in a sense it's all great but then when you see it being used in operation, you go, it's really making us cold and right. making us lash out and not take life seriously. You know, and really music is, is soul. Music is uh, an incredible spiritual, emotional uh, connection. And, and, yet, and yet it can be, um, in a way, made like pornography. It can be so quick, so fast, mm. over with. You see, is it good? I don't know. And you're hearing it through small little speakers and then somebody else is playing it through a phone. <laughs> well, we really are dissipating quality here. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating that everything has to be serious and, you know, um, beautifully recorded, uh, but I do feel what we're lacking is a real tangible connection to the arts because digital has made it um, like a flushing toilet. It's so it's just we're so we're so used to it. Remember in the early days, if there was a special record coming from Michael Jackson, or there was a great Joni Mitchell album that didn't have any hits on it, but it was like going into another landscape and living in a in a very personal world. Uh, I think that that was in a way pretty fantastic, you know, and. Um, that's not quite as evident as it is uh, as it was back then. A lot, of, a lot of the music business is suffering for that. I mean, if, if it wasn't suffering, you'd still see Tower Records. If it wasn't suffering, you'd still see bookshops. Right. Um, uh, in every walk of life, digital uh, it, it has sped things along. But speeding is not always the best way to go. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Now, is is that also why like? The like movie soundtrack is kind of like gone away as well. Yes, it is not because there's no money. You see, no, they 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 can get everything cheaper now. So you you look for some person who's going to do something in the on a laptop in the back of a car, and and that person on the laptop in the back of the car is just happy to, to get something liked on Facebook or taken by for a film. So the film the film companies don't have to. Um, have the budgets to pay for musicians or great songs or any of that. So it's all to do with making everything cheaper, faster, quicker, and um, get the job done. So, you know, everybody's got a studio and in their laptop and uh, or on their phone. You know, you make an album on your phone. And then uh, you can, 
why the why the uh, a lot of my friends do music for movies and for advertisements, and it's a struggle for them because they say, you know, quality is not needed anymore. It's um, we can we can sample something from a garage band, and some guy's going to undercut me and get that to a film company, and they'll and they'll pay much much less for that. So. You know, you you know that all trickles down. That trickles down to the musicians not being used, the players not having to play, and um, everything um, everything suffers for that. You know, uh, every now and then you'll see a great movie, and they'll go back and they'll pick a Creedence Clearwater Revival song or that Otis Redding, something where it touches people. I mean, it's very evident to me that when they want to move somebody in movies, you know, uh, in general for a, a, an emotional film, they look. You find the songs are dipping back to uh, the era of, you know, Otis Redding, Motown, The Beatles, soul music. Um, it's not evident that there's a lot of passionate music coming out. Um, for the, and of course, as I just pointed out, and I, I sound like I'm grumbling here. I'm not. <laughs> I'm still. But you know, the film companies don't have to go searching for that special track because they they know that. Um, they can get a, a much quicker track from some guy on his laptop who can do a really good little quick, quick little job. So there's a lot of undercutting going on, and it's really hard to say it's wrong because it gives the other people a chance to get through. But it's just the quality level because the rec- it trickles down. The guy says, "I do my next record on GarageBand, and, I'll, and I know I'll get a couple of uh, Facebook, Facebook likes." Another thing is this thing where really a lot of people will do music and put it on YouTube or whatever just to get likes, you know. So it's not about making a career out of it. It's just like, oh, somebody likes us, great. Somebody likes that, great. So it undercuts um, musicians trying to do their best work and be and, and, and be paid for it, you know. I've been one of the lucky ones because I've been a writer uh, for a long time and a lot of the songs are still moving around out there, luckily. But for the young writer out there who's really trying to do something special, it can be hard because... You know, um, uh, the budgets are much lower now because you, they have learnt that they can get stuff cheaper and people will accept it cheaper. That's a big thing where kids don't always know that they could be listening to something better, something really, um, you know, like listening to a Led Zeppelin record. Uh, there's, that's when, when I notice young kids that I, I, I bump into and they say, man, I've just played the first... Led Zeppelin record. I can't believe how it sounds. You know, always oh, it sounds so different and so full. I think I better buy a vinyl record. And it's what what we're re- what they're really saying there is there's a lot of a lot of precision and time put into the art, and there's not quite that going around now because uh, there's not much money being paid to these bands or these writers or these artists to develop themselves. Development's not really going on anymore. And everybody has to tour. You know, you can't sit in the studio for every year making uh, Abbey Road something or Sergeant Pepper. That's not happening anymore because nobody will fund it and nobody will wait, wait that amount of time. But everybody has to get out there and do a few gigs and they've got to put their track up on Facebook really fast. So it's a, what I like to call is the, um, you know, technical depression at the moment um, where we haven't really found our our legs on what digital technology is doing to the arts. There has to be a middle way. There has to be, as the Buddhists say, a middle way. We have to still be looking for quality. Quality, you know, um, we can look at Twitter and go, nobody has to really say anything. 
even have to spell, they don't have to really think about hurting people from a distance. So digital, beautiful, fantastic for speed and incredible things, but it's also got a, a bit of a dark side to it on every, every, if it's not used properly, you know, and that's why the music industry is suffering a little bit, you know. Yeah, now, um, one of my favorite, if not all-time favorite bands is uh, Tears for Fears, and uh, uh-huh. yeah, you, you worked with Kurt Smith on his solo album, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, how was that experience? It, it was great. I mean, great. Uh, Kurt, I was signed to Mercury Records, and I, uh, with Kurt was, um, again, I think a publisher said, go and meet Kurt, he's going to make a solo record, and I, I thought the Tears for Tears records were pretty outstanding, right. and, and Mad World was brilliant, and all this, just really creative. And uh, I got on with Kurt, and, and Kurt was doing three tracks with one producer, three tracks with another producer, and he wanted to write songs. So we wrote three songs together. And what was great about working with Kurt was, um, it's where I first met through him, the musicians that played with Tears of Fears. Neil Taylor, a guitarist who um, uh, went on to play with me on my future records, and the great drummer, Jimmy Copley. Um, he was, these, both these musicians were with, with Kurt. And when Kurt said, why don't you produce the tracks we've written, these musicians played on it. and. Uh, you know, I fell in love with their plan, and they became great friends. And uh, Kurt made the solo record, but I don't think Mercury were too thrilled with it. And I think there was a bit of a bust up with it, with him and some political stuff going on. So I never really saw the light of day. Um, but I do remember that um, project fondly because I met so many good musicians around Kurt. And uh, again, it was another. I was very fortunate as a producer because I never really looked to produce, but. Um, when people did my songs, like Kurt would say, you produce it. Uh, Bobby Robertson said, be an associate producer. Marie said, be involved in the production. And then um, uh, I would work with John White, you know. Um, so I, I sort of, and Paul Young, I produced the tracks when I wrote the songs with the, with the artist. And that was always a really great learning curve for me. But yeah, again, I think that was a, you brought me back to thinking that we, we made that record, you know, on analog. And uh, yeah, I think the other producer was uh, Chris Kimsey, who'd worked with the Rolling Stones. And we were all working on 24-track analog at the village and in my house. And still the days of um, people playing and using tape. And and I, I don't gripe at all about saying, I've st- as I'm sat talking to you now, I've still got my studio tape machine in the, in the the uh, in my studio here. I just couldn't, didn't have the balls to sell it. I love looking at it. <laughs> but when, when kids come in, they go and point at it like it's a prehistoric monster but uh, <laughs> you know like what's that my god is that what you worked on you know it's as big as a house but it, it those projects were you know instrumental and I think making me become a better songwriter with Kurt with everybody I worked with I always tried to take something from it I always tried to take something that I could take onto the next project now last question I um one of my favorite movies is Ghostbusters, and I know you <laughs> were, you know, performing with Ray Parker Jr. in the title song of that movie. That must have been fun. Yeah. I was uh, really strange, you know. <laughs> I mean, brilliant, brilliant. But um, before I left London uh, to come here, to uh, not knowing if I was going to stay here, even my, we'd, my publisher had said, you know, Ray Parker. Out of the blue, you know, I didn't know I was going to meet Ray Parker. He said, um, great rider, you know, the back. And I bought some singles in England by Radio Jack and Jill. Great R&B pop. 
And um, I came when I came into LA and met with my future manager Diane Poncher. Well, she worked at uh, a management company that handled Ray, handled Earth, Wind, and Fire. So she was quite instrumental in getting me to meet Maurice. And then she said, "I really want." She was handling Ray Parker. She said, "I really want Ray to meet you. He's going to really like you." And um, uh, there's a meeting set up for me and my mate Brian, my partner, to go to Ray Parker's studio. We went to meet Ray Parker. He was lovely, and he said. I like your Q-Feel stuff. I was, it's really interesting. Everybody would like to Q-Feel. And he said, um, I'm trying to change my stuff a bit. Mm -hmm. and, and he said, I've got this track going. And he played us this track. And, uh, you know, who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? I thought, what the hell is this? You know? And he said, I'm doing it for a film, you know. And well, why don't you play some keyboards on it to me? And I had this little Casio keyboard. And I said, okay, right, you know, this unbelievable. I've been in L.A. for a week. And he said to Brian, my guitarist, oh, you play a rock guitar on it. And um, he took us into his office and he played this owner, owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. And he said, that's fantastic, isn't it? I said, yeah. He said, I want a bit of that modernness on my tracks. And um, he did play us, um, a, uh, I think it was One New Drug from Huey Lewis, right. uh, and w which also sounds like pop music, you know. Yeah, by by M, whatever. They, it, it all sounded the same, but we went in and we jammed and I played my little Casio keyboard on the, few, on the middle eight and Brian played rock guitar like we thought would be good. And we didn't think much of it. He brought us uh, two hours there, then, it, then he brought a crowd of people in and we all sang, you know, who are you going to call? And I thought, to be honest with you, I thought, I don't know what this is or it didn't sound very good to me. I didn't think it was funky or anything. I thought... Oh, Brian, what are we doing? It's lovely to meet Ray Parker, but I think this is trash what we're working on, but <laughs> hopefully we'll work with him down the line. Right. Then we're literally within three weeks. We heard it on the radio, you know. Uh, I thought, my God, we were, we were, this is what we played on. And Ray gave us a call and said, this is for that movie, Ghostbusters. And we didn't really know what we were doing. And then it was number one. And I remember saying to Brian, I was saying, America is fantastic. I mean, we just got off the plane, went into a into a studio and shouted out, who are you going to call? And it's number one. <laughs> I thought, I said, America is really, really good. We've got to stay here. <laughs> Ray was very sweet because um, it became a huge track and, it, and, it, and he's a very talented guy. I mean, what, what we were playing on, we didn't really hear that it was going to turn into something so well put together. He's a, he's a, he's a master, a great guitarist, a maestro, and a, he became very, very friendly with us. And he sent us a... Uh, a gold album the moment it went gold and, and all we'd done it played on it and it was the first week we were in LA so it was all pretty magical um, and again I have to say no the good fortune that we met the right people at the right time Ray was a very, very nice man Maurice White was an incredibly spiritual man who after he worked on me and Brian said if you guys have got something special if you don't get involved in drugs or alcohol and you keep your naive enthusiasm for music, he said you're going to go far. So I felt very fortunate that the first people I worked with in America were all in it for the music and for, you know, good spirit and having a good time and really cherishing music. Um, so Ghostbusters was a, one of those sparky things where we, um, Brian and I, fell into something that was destined to be number one and um, we were singing about ghosts. I mean, you can't plan this stuff, you know what I mean? It's, if you, you, this, this is quite, the kind of stuff that you just can't plan. If somebody said to me, well, you're going to go to America next week and sing about ghosts, and it's going to go number one, and you're going to play your cheap little Casio keyboard on it, I'd have said, you know, you're crazy. You, you know, you're, you're mad as a hatter. 
But these, it's taught me in future years that um, not to uh, lock down my my thoughts too much because st- some strange things have happened in my career. Um, I think the one thing that's made it all happen is um, the willingness to follow the love of music. You know, I wouldn't have been in that studio with Ray Parker unless I'd had cue for on, unless years before that I hadn't been an apprentice uh, bass player all around the country. So it all ends up, if you do it for the right reasons, um, in a good place usually. I've just been very fortunate. Another happy accident, right? <laughs> You know, when I write songs, um, when I when I do write a song, it's usually all of it is usually a happy um, mistake because I like to I like to just go for emotion and atmosphere and and jam. And I nothing. It's the only thing that's planned is that I I'm, I want to go into the studio and I and I want to make music. But what comes out, I have absolutely no <laughs> idea what it is until it until I look at it a few hours later. So that's the great thing about. Um, my job, my job as a songwriter, it's all, every day it's um, a bit of a magical mystery. I don't know what's going to appear, and when it does, it's highly exciting, and, and it keeps me on my toes, so I've got the best job in the world, I feel. Martin, this was so much fun. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, No, I really enjoy it, and keep up the good work with the, with the great podcast. Yeah, we've got to spread the word of good music always. <laughs> And a special thanks to Martin for joining us today. You can follow Martin on Twitter at MartinPageMusic. You can check out his website, MartinPage.com. He's also on Facebook. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's TheFirstNoel19. Be sure to like the page We're Living My Youth on Facebook. You can go to iTunes. You can check out past episodes. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Special thanks to everyone who's listening. I can't do it without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of We're Living My Youth real soon.